Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is a special episode because everything I pretty much told y'all was going to happen did happen. And Democrats actually had a, a better night. And they actually had a better night than even I projected. And I was probably the rosiest prognosticator. It looks like the House will only be five, six, seven seats. And the Senate, if you keep counting the ballots in Arizona and Nevada, look really, really good for Democrats. But today I got somebody who knows this better than I, and we can talk about, we can dig into uh, some of the voting patterns, et cetera, but none other than my brother, Ested Herndon. How you feeling, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me. Man, I'm more blessed than I deserve. Is that a Peloton behind you? Uh, it's a knockoff Peloton. It's a <laughs> mix. Uh, uh, I bought it last year. I maybe have written it like two to three times. I tore my Achilles right after I got it playing basketball. And so I had much bigger problems. That's my biggest fear. Like, and and it's funny. The reason I'm laughing is because last night we had the, on CNN, we had the deputy secretary of state from Arizona because the current secretary of state, of course, is uh, running for governor. And, um, she had her Peloton like right behind her in the shop. No, people... People take it. People, t- it's a real cultural like thing. Like every time I sit right here, which is where I sit, like where I'm doing like work calls, people are like, oh, can I have your Peloton, whatever? And I always have to explain it's a knockoff. Like <laughs> I should have just paid the extra money because at this point, the embarrassment of saying it's a knockoff has actually cost me more than it's <laughs> worth. <laughs> so look, let you know, each one of our episodes, and we've had you on before, but each one of our episodes, we uh, have our guests walk us through the arc of their career. Uh, I think you started your career at the Boston Globe. Talk about that experience and what got you into political journalism. Uh, Yeah, no problem. I was uh, in college. I was a sports journalist and I wasn't really um, that satisfied with it. And I was just kind of like doing nothing largely. And I took a AmeriCorps year and I taught kids. Oh, wow. And then when I came back from teaching kids, I actually got an education reporting internship at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel because I was going to school at Marquette. And it was um, and that was like my entry into doing non like basketball journalism. And it was actually good because I didn't actually want to be a basketball journalist. I just like watching basketball. <laughs> so like it was actually a, a merging of things that were good. But I was always someone who like cared about politics and cared uh, and, and like, you know, I was on my school newspaper, even though like I wasn't taking it that seriously. So like newspapers and writing were always something that was in the back of my head. But it wasn't until after that experience, I took it kind of seriously. And I got an internship at the Boston Globe after college. And then they hired me. I stayed there for two years, um, first doing like crime, then doing like the Boston City Council. That's when like Ayanna Pressley, Michelle Wu, who's now the mayor, were really the leading voices on that council. And then the 2016 election started. And like that changed a lot for me because um, uh, basically like the globe wasn't prepared for Trump to win or to cover him at all. And like I was like a young black person with no kids and no family and would go out to Trump rallies. And so that's what started me doing national stuff was because all the national reporters didn't want to go. And I was 23 and I decided to go. <laughs> Let me ask you this, a couple things. First, if you guys have eight dollars. Don't worry about going to uh, get a badge on Twitter. Make sure you invest in local journalism. Like, <laughs> yeah, local. yeah, yeah. Get like real. a subscription to the newspaper <laughs> with that $8 instead of getting a blue check. That's first. Second, man, talk to me about the racial dynamics of Boston real quick. Is it the same, especially during the era of Trump? Because, I mean, yeah. this is one of the questions I have. 
but Boston gets the rap from Bill Russell forward of being one of yeah. the more racist cities in the union. Talk about that dynamic with the overlay of Trump. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it it's real. And I do think that the the it was funny when I was going when I was leaving school. Right. Like and telling people I got an internship at the Boston Globe, white people would be like, oh, my God, that's so great. Blah, 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 blah. And black people would say that was great, but they would also be like, are you sure? Like, is that <laughs> a thing that you want to do? <laughs> is that a choice that you actively want to make? And uh, it was it was both, I think, actually, like the paper was really good. It was a really great place to learn how to be a journalist and learn how to be a real one. Um, but at the same time, like Boston is so parochial. It's so traditional old school. And those old schools all align with those white power structures. And so like it, it's not necessarily that I think it was I was coming from Wisconsin. I didn't feel like it was more. It's not like it was more racist. It was just like a thing that hit differently and more specifically. And I actually think that a lot of those really rich liberal schools have a lot to do with it, too, out there. Like I was in Cambridge where you are surrounded by not only like like the same kind of structural racism and justice stuff, but also these schools that are telling you that they're not part of it and kind of like lecturing in this like New England liberal way that I really hate it too. And so I feel like Boston has both sides of that coin where you do have the kind of like Southie Bill Russell energy that is still there, but you also have that kind of liberal uh, uh, like lecturing energy. And I think the combo of it, I totally get why black people are like, nah, forget this city. But at the same time, like Boston has a bunch of black folks. Like it's not even that wide a of a fun place. City, like, man. I, I it's love. a fine, you know, like, and so I don't also like, I also don't want to like erase the like real people of color and like real communities that are there who have nothing to do with those people. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about these midterms. Let's jump right in it. First things first, uh, what do you think happens in Arizona and Nevada? I think uh, Catherine Cortez Masto keeps rising with the votes outstanding in, in Reno and um, Clark County. But what are you seeing and what do we know about those votes that are outstanding? Yeah, I mean, that's my sense, too. I mean, I haven't been like tabulated closely. I've been following our chatter and like it, it seems to me from the people who know that state most clearly uh, uh, that the outstanding votes give Democrats a lot of confidence there. I think the same is true um, in, in Mark Kelly in Arizona. I think there's a sense that he uh, uh, might pull it out so much so that the Democrats may not have to worry about Georgia's runoff controlling the Senate. I think that there is uh, a little less certainty about that governor race in Arizona. Yeah. I do think that like it seems like if there's any Republican who has a good shot out of those things, it might be Carrie Lake there. But um, definitely it looks like Democrats have done well enough to make the Georgia runoff not determinative, which is, I think, a huge accomplishment. Like, I don't think that should be, you know, uh, for for Dems, that's a big deal. Let's talk about Carrie Lake for a minute because she terrifies me. She's like, the, <laughs> first of all, I mean, she's like, I don't want to say she's aesthetically pleasing because that's she's got the I'm, Zoom filter. <laughs> yeah, but she actually knows like media, and she's been, yeah, no, she's and, really good at it. Yeah. yeah, and she's good at it, and yeah. she, she's like. Aesthetically manipulative, I think yeah, I that's yeah. the word that I'm looking for. So what what do you see? Because there is this kind of messy divorce going on with Trumpism right now that we're seeing playing out before our eyes after Tuesday night. But what do you see as the future of somebody like Carrie Lake if she's fortunate enough to uh, make it through and, and win? Right, right, right. I think, one, we should. I do think we see an open talk about Trump among Republicans we haven't seen in a long time. And I think it's important to say it's not just Fox, which has gone through a couple want to be Trump breaks. It's really like that kind of MAGA 
media ecosystem is now openly saying that he's a drag on the party. And so I think that that is a new thing. Um, but the problem for if you're someone who thinks that's an easy way to get rid of Trump is like the 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 beliefs he represents are well are are well uh, ingrained within the base. And so it's not as if uh, uh, just saying that or just saying him immediately gets that wing out of the way. I do think there's a sense that election denialism, particularly of 2020, might have been too much, right? And so I think that the Kerry Lakes, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, that lane of Republican, I can easily see them rebranding all the Trumpism without the election denial part, just the kind of forward-looking stuff. And then in that case, I do think it's going to be a real um, uh, a fight to be the standard bearer of that side. And so, you know, I'm someone who does not think Ron DeSantis or anyone really will just walk into a Republican nomination. I think that he has done himself a real service in terms of like putting him, creating a kind of outside brand that the Tim Ryans, the Nikki Haley's, all those people haven't really been able to do. But the Trump wing is going to pressure him from the right. And there will be someone who takes that mantle up. It might not be Donald Trump. He might be too wounded either legally, politically, or that stuff to re or from last night or two nights ago to really do that. But someone, and it might be Carrie Lake, emerges in that space. Uh, because the beliefs are are there. It's the not Donald Trump there. telling the them. Is. Yeah, it's not Donald Trump telling them to believe that. They believe that. No, I mean, you're right. You you speak to something that, you know, you might break up from the man, but you still got to get his voters out. I mean, Donald yeah. Trump has has a base. We're going to play a clip right now from Candace Owens that highlights what we're talking about. I've never played a clip from fucking Candace Owens on my show, but we're going to do it because she actually has some things to say about Donald Trump. I think the base is feeling that trepidation. They're not sure who to listen to on endorsements. Do you listen to DeSantis? Do you listen to Trump? Or do we listen to... These influencers, are these influencers listening to DeSantis? Are these influencers listening to Trump? They're wondering about what the leadership looks like. And I think that I am not at all under any impression that Trump can't win in 2024. No. What I am saying is that Trump needs to take a good look in the mirror. And he needs to take a good look in the room. And he needs to read the room accurately. He needs to take a look at those that are around him that are inspiring this paranoia and making him believe that everyone's out to get him, including his friends. And he needs to exercise a tiny bit more humility when he gets something wrong. Trump is not perfect. I'm not perfect. I get things wrong. I edit. I say, thank you guys for bringing me this new information. I hadn't realized that. And there's still a period where he could transform. But I think the results of last night's election, which are still coming in, show that we aren't sure. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. 
Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So I've got two questions for you, Stead, because I think some folks may misread or may have misread 2020 and were surprised by both uh, at how Stacey fared, but also uh, how close Herschel Walker came to actually winning despite his underperforming mm-hmm. Trump 2020 numbers and every other statewide Republican on the ballot. What should we take away from Georgia? Because the second highest vote getter behind Raphael Warnock was actually Jen Jordan, the mm-hmm. Democratic, well, loser, the Democratic uh, uh, nominee for attorney general. She actually outpaced Herschel Walker. So mm-hmm. what do we make about this Stacey Abrams, Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock dynamic in Georgia? Yeah, no, I think that, uh, uh, you know, you started by saying 2020. I mean, we did an episode on our our show about how I think the narrative coming out of 2020 was just too simple and it didn't do really people any good for understanding Georgia. I mean, not any good is too much, but I did think that simple narrative kind of flattened uh, the realities of what is a complicated state that has a lot of different facets that allowed it to go blue in 2020. That included, you know, getting kind of base voters out in a real way. But that also included a real push for moderate Republicans who were mad at Donald Trump and came over to uh, Ossoff and Warnock in 2020. Uh, and that also included Republicans who were internally mad at their own candidates in that Senate runoff and didn't come out in the same ways that that Trump had kind of made it easier for Democrats. Uh, I think with that view, you see what's happening here this year uh, uh, with a little more uh, uh, nuance. You have Governor Kemp who has a real brand in that state and is not a a, a chump cut out Republican. Uh, uh, He is someone who not only has used the governor powers to kind of curry favor across the state, but has also obviously has distance from Donald Trump on the biggest wedge issue among Republicans, which is denying the election in 2020. That was always going to be a really high bar for Abrams to clear. But I think in this race, we have not seen her put together the level of energy that was going to be necessary to really even start that clearing. Um, I think when you see other parts of the state, you do see some evidence that there are some Georgia voters who are willing to back Democrats in other places and may not in that governor's race. So obviously Warnock outperformed uh, uh, you mentioned Jordan, but I think that that grows to a kind of growing sense that Dems have there, which is that like the path to victory is a is an and or it can't just be it is an and strategy, not an or strategy. Right. Like it can't just be you run a base motivation. That's not enough to win in no, Georgia. Not in the South at ha- all. And not in the South at all. You have to d- include persuasion alongside that. And um and. And and that just gets you in the game. You know, Republicans can still do what they do and you still lose. It's just that that's a necessary the the both doing both of those things is the starting point for Democrats to be able to succeed there because it's a 50 like, you know, I think when people we talk about purple states, sometimes people act like that means blue and waiting. And I'm like, 
maybe that, you know, maybe you're talking about years and years from now, but it's still legitimately purple and the Republicans can legitimately win without nothing going wrong. You know, yeah, purple means it's 55 percent one way. Exactly. You got a shot at getting that other five percent. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do you think we saw such a disparity on how Stacey performed versus Warnock? And I want I want you to like don't hold back here. I mean, some of it has to do with the power of incumbency, but yeah, there are I other mean, factors as well. I mean, I mean, it doesn't seem you know. Listen, when we did when we did our interview with her, she quadrupled down not only on rejecting the view of 2020 as including other portions of the electorate, but also that this time she could run a race using that strategy and win. She was clear that like she it wasn't just that she wanted to win. She wanted to win her way. Right. And that's fine. I think I like I respect the kind of clarity of that. But that's a risky thing, <laughs> particularly in an, particularly in an environment where like where it's not as if Democrats Hair, were hair on fire excited about the the, the uh, approval president. Where it's not like Democrats were in a movement mode. They were in a protection mode. They were motivated for sure. But it wasn't like it wasn't because of like it wasn't like they're feeling great. They were motivated uh, uh, for other reasons too. And so I just think it's a high. I just think she like I think it's a strategy that's high risk. And I think she did not show a willingness to really change up that up and. So you take what you, and so it reminds me actually of Bernie 2020, right? Where it's like, that was someone who actually had a lot of lessons they could have built on from 2016. And I think like, I was actually expecting a campaign that brought in those lessons the second time around. And that campaign didn't really bring in those lessons. It ran the race they wanted to do a second time. I kind of think about that with the Abrams campaign. Like, I thought you were going to run a race this time that incorporated all of these things we learned and built on the things that you already had and they wanted to win the, the way they wanted to win. So, you know, that's how the cookie crumbles, I guess. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of, I, I actually have some thoughts, but I'm I, sure you do. Like, I, yeah, I but... like, I'm about to ask you, like, there's a lot, like, I know this wasn't a small conversation. Like I know that like, you know, the folks in the South have been saying this stuff about no, uh, ways about, about what I you think say? you're right about that. You're, you're completely right about the fact that the campaign was the same campaign that it ran in 2018. Even Barack Obama didn't run the same campaign in 2012 that he ran. Yeah. You just can't recapture that. that yeah. And that so election. like, and so what I was actually really surprised personally, because I thought, no way they just run it back. You know, like I but thought I, like, I, for a selfish reason, there, there are a couple of selfish reasons. One, I know that she's doing much better personally, mm -hmm. um, you know, after that race, being able to go out, not being in public office, being able mm -hmm. to write books, mm -hmm. travel mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and speak. I thought her selfishly, I wanted her to run because I knew that would help Raphael Warnock mm -hmm. and help us keep the Senate because she's responsible and we mm -hmm. can't deny that she's mm -hmm. responsible for the groundwork necessary to flip Georgia. But there's something about running in a midterm with an unpopular president in the state of Georgia with those headwinds that just doesn't seem like the timing was right. Yeah, I asked her like I was like, did you did you kind of wish you did the Senate race? And um, no, because she wants to be governor. Like, I mean, I and so it's like to me, it's like if you're a politician that has such a clarity over what you want, yeah, right. Then I actually I actually am like, okay, I respect you're saying I want this office and I want to do it using this strategy, and that's the way I want to be governor. And so the fact that she clearly will articulate that means to me, like, oh, I'm not about to like. 
then I'm like, okay, you wanted, it was not just a, a, about the office, but about proving a larger point, which I can feel like, all right, then I respect the two tries at it, but I'm with you that like in this environment with the realities of Georgia, it was hard for me to see that strategy working better this time around. Like it, it, it seems clear seemed clear to me it was going to be tougher this time around. Last thing about about Abrams that we need to clarify is that her problems with black men was a little bit oversold because yes. it was clear she had a white person problem. She didn't yeah. have a black men problem. The problem and, and I get it was it was interesting to me because like like I was like there are simply not enough black male Republicans to swing a Georgia. Like it's like it's like it wasn't like by itself in isolation. The number of black men that would have to leave the Democratic Party would be palpable to all of us. It would yes. be a movement. <laughs> like, <laughs> Those six hundred black black yeah, men. I'm like, man, yeah, I want to go. Yeah, I'm like, like yeah. I'm like when you're talking about a percentage point move off of a poll, you're talking about like X amount of people. And I do think Democrats do have real erosion problems with black men. Like that's already been stuck, but that's bigger than her. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I, you know. And so I was I was of the opinion. Um, but they leaned into it, you know, like they did those they did those events about it and they thought they were going to push motivation through that. With you, I, It was an overhype. Her core problem was moderate suburbanites who were down with Warnock, were not down with her. And like Kemp, they're conservatives. Yeah. And, yeah. A, and a lot of them. But and a lot of them just don't like Herschel Walker. Uh, let's, let's move on a little bit because I want to talk about Herschel Walker and Warnock and it will eventually get out of the state of Georgia. Tell <laughs> me this. I, there are, there are a lot of competing theories here. The first is that, you know, I am concerned that after we win Nevada and Arizona, which looked like we're well on our way to do that Democrats may not care as much yeah. about, uh, about Georgia as possible. But then the flip side is that with the house gone, Republicans may not care as much. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking about. Warnock, does he win? And is there enough to get him over the hump? December 6th, I think, is that election. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a crazy, I feel like runoffs are really hard because to your point about motivation and to your point about stakes, like you just don't know how that's going to fall. Last time it was so clearly this decides the Senate that like it was a very easy motivation story for Democrats to tell their base. This would be about Warnock. This would be about the state of Georgia. But it's not going to have the same level of national implications, even though like it, it will be deeply important. I think Democrats should remember that having one more senator to make Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema matter less is really important for the party. So no you would shit. think that there should be real energy around that. But I don't know how that's going to fall. But do you, I think your point about complacency is a really good one. Like, I was actually thinking about Wisconsin on this point. Like, on, on our show, we really highlighted the importance of the Wisconsin state Supreme Court race next Name year. your show. You keep saying our show. Just name oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The run-up. The, yeah, <laughs> the run-up. Uh, this, this podcast at the New York Times. Uh, I, for, um, uh, uh, on the run-up, we focused on uh, this state Supreme Court race happening in Wisconsin next year. That basically is going to control gerrymandering, which has kept Democrats just completely out of any voices of power in Wisconsin for the last 15 years. And I was talking to someone in Wisconsin who was actually worried that Democrats feeling good now in an election that mattered for them, but like is not is not like the really important one, was wondering whether that helps or hurts their party's motivation chances for this off-year election they have six months from now, where the party really was seeing real interest in those in the Trump era. And so I think it's it's up to Democrats again to make down ballot matter for them. 
Like they cannot use this as a, a, a loyal a laurel resting more so than they have to see this as investment works, long-term organizing work, and they have to keep doing it because I, it's a very easy scenario to see the Republican clawback here um, uh, 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 being, I mean, it's not like Democrats, right? Like, like they stopped a super majority in Wisconsin, which was a huge deal, but those maps are still in place, right? The super majority can come the next time. And so it's like, it's important for the party to continue to reinvest, particularly in those down ballot races, uh, uh, if they're going to make long-term inroads. Shout out to Mandela Barnes, who lost by 27,000 votes. Yep. That, you know, 27,000 votes is the size of New Birth Church in Atlanta. It's yeah. the size of Potter's House in, 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 in Dallas, Texas. And he got outspent by outside money by $29 million. Yeah. So they... They they threw everything they had at, uh, you know, I you know, and it's funny, you know, I've known I, as someone who was in Milwaukee, like I remember Mandela when he was a 25 year old state sure. rep and stuff. And I, I feel like it has been interesting to see how the state's Democratic Party has come to see Milwaukee as something they like should not run from, uh, which which for a long time, it felt like Wisconsin Democrats were running from Milwaukee. And I think that like in his race not only just winning and losing, he has done a real justice to like a type of strategy and a type of candidate that I think will, the, the, the party had to expand some of its thinking on its possibilities there. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more.
speaking of, let's talk about Fetterman a little while, because, you know, prior to this race, you know, I wasn't the biggest Fetterman fan. Mm-hmm. He he converted me because he showed me the three P's, uh, progressivism, uh, populism and pragmatism, which I think a lot of progressives don't have. Mm-hmm. But Fetterman showed that pragmatism could lead to this kind of change. He went in those rural counties, met voters where they were. Yeah had a great turnout of African-American voters in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Some, some of that wasn't up to him, but it still still happened. Can you talk a little bit about what made the Fetterman campaign so good, other than the fact he was running against a carpetbagger? Anytime you're <laughs> running in Pennsylvania against somebody from New Jersey, that should be helpful. Yeah. Uh, and how did he win this race? No, I, I think it actually starts before the. I mean, I think Fetterman's. Are, speaking of interesting models of Democratic candidates that they have now, this is someone who, like, who, who, who we have should say if we go back to that primary was not like the anointed Democrat of that primary, and I think was someone who who was skipping the line uh, in terms of trying to make a new type of bench for Democrats in Pennsylvania. Remember the like gripe with a lot of these state parties has been a real lack of like um, uh, creativity around who can win statewide. And so I remember the conversations about Connor Lamb and Fetterman at the time of that primary and the fear being that his progressivism was not pragmatic, you know, basically to that point. I think what you saw was a race that really proved that every day by not um, uh, uh, by by focusing kind of like away from national topics. But at the same time, I think he did not. But but we, when we say that, I think sometimes we can say that a candidate's not focusing on national topics, but then they lean into like kind of culture warry things to appease national pundits. You know, he would have mm-hmm. like, he didn't, he didn't go down the crime route. He didn't go down the route of like throwing, uh, or, or like I saw a tweet that said, you know, John Fetterman didn't win working class people by throwing trans people under the bus. Like that was a choice that that campaign had to make because the national energy pushing them uh, uh, was really heavy. And they kind of stayed firm on that. And it helped them, I think, in that debate when the national kind of side turned on them. And so they really created a bunker in Pennsylvania to focus locally, to focus on voter, and then to use kind of abortion, I think, specifically in the general picture of Republicans as extreme to really drive energy. And you have to say, to your point, the win was kind of across the board. He saw movement toward him outside of city. He saw movement toward him within city. Like, and so you can't really say that it wasn't cohesive. Uh, uh, but I honestly think some of this is just a Republican Party in Pennsylvania and in Trump era that like, like has was just lost. And Doug Mastriano is an is a candidate that should not happen. And that top of ticket weighed them down horribly too. Uh, we don't talk about enough about this. I mentioned it this morning on CNN, but we giving DeSantis a whole lot of Superman powers, but we're not talking about Big Gretchen, Michigan. Talk about Gretchen <laughs> Whitmer, Big Gretchen. She flipped the house in the Senate. Yeah, huge, huge, huge one. Democratic I mean, one going away. Yeah, I mean, and Tudor was Tudor's a you know I, I like Tudor a lot, but she crazy. Uh, <laughs> and Big Gretchen vanquished her. Talk about Gretchen Whitmer and what that means for her future. I think Gretchen Whitmer is a really interesting candidate. I mean, beyond even just her win, what they were able to do in the state legislature in Michigan in terms of flipping it, whatever they and and getting that abortion ballot a measure on the ballot drove energy, and again becomes another case of when of when of when you know after the Dobbs decision, 
when the Supreme Court puts abortion in the hands of state legislatures, you get bans that are out that are not within the realm of where public opinion is, that are way too far conservative because of that gerrymandering. But when those states put it on the ballot, you are actually seeing that drive energy and then protect abortion rights in a way that has often helped Democrats. We saw that in a big way in Michigan and helped the party really reverse a lot of that swing state of uh, Republican built-in uh, uh, advantages that they had on the legislature level. And Whitmer's going to get a ton of credit for that, as she should. And this is someone I think we remember, like, there was a lot of rumbles that, uh, about her at the vice presidential time. There is a, so this is someone who, like, is part of that Midwestern uh, a wall that Democrats need in 2024. I think that there is going to be a lot of focus on her as a as a as a national figure coming up but i really think that is not just because that she won re-election it's because like abortion and michigan democrats created a full statewide win uh, a full full down ballot win that i think like uh, uh it really puts a win to their back on the national level but we're gonna see a lot of that i mean Pritzker's acting like he's interested out in Illinois. Uh, uh, you know, like, I, I think that they're going to see, you know, Joe Biden had a great night, but he remain his age remains his age. And I think that, like... He didn't get younger? He didn't he's get not younger. getting any younger. And I think the, the vultures who are looking at 2024 and the people who have money backing them to push them in that direction, I think that's still going to happen even quietly. So uh, when, as we get near the end of this conversation, I could talk to you all day about this. Next time we got to have some beer or something that that would make the conversation even better. <laughs> but uh, how, what do Democrats do about Ohio and Florida? Because right now, Florida starting to look a whole lot like Alabama. Yeah, I don't know. Florida looks gone. I don't I don't I don't. I think Florida looks like a Republican state, at least from at least Ron DeSantis, Florida. And the thing about it is like. Um, it looked like that way for a while, right? You know, even with, uh, uh, and they, they got the candidates uh, against Marco Rubio and Val Demings that they needed to get to make this race, um, to give this race energy. And still, you see a Florida that is moving in the completely opposite direction. What is happening, particularly in Miami-Dade for Democrats, has to be its own focus group. You know, I think I think Florida, like, for me as a reporter, like, Florida has too many internal dynamics to feel nationally representative on any level. And I feel like if I am with the Democratic Party, if I want to win races in Florida, that's not going to take some like one cycle investment. Yep. That is going to take a state like forensic analysis that that ha because Florida is moving differently than the rest of the country. Yep. And the populations there are so diverse and ethnically, racially, and just vibes why that I just think that like it's hard for them to tell a singular story about that state. Ohio, I actually think it's a much like, you know, Ohio has a much more like we know that white non-white college folks have moved away from Democrats. We know that like Tim Ryan was able to bring some of those folks back, but it's going to require getting more of those people over. There's a more clear story in Ohio. Florida, I have no, you know, it like like, Man, look, Florida's, you know. <laughs> Florida's three states. Florida's three separate states. The talent, the panhandle is yeah, the panhandle Alabama. is Alabama. <laughs> That's Alabama. The center of the state is Florida, and then the bottom of the state. We got to stop talking about voters as being Hispanic voters because it's more than that. It's more nuanced. Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Puerto Rican, Dominican, Mexican, Cuban, Cuban who arrived at different times, yes. Venezuelan, and we have to be able to. And I know 
people hate this about identity politics, but you have to be able to craft the economic message to them all, but also speak to each subgroup with issues they care about. And people are coming from different contexts. They're coming from different political realities. The socialism message is too broad. That's true for some countries, but not other. I mean, but we can't allow that socialism message to stick either, like because they they hate that shit. And we just allowing them to call us socialism and say, oh, yeah, that's cute. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that there had to have been the first step was recognizing that diversity, which we should be honest, is only just happening. Yes, no (laughs) question. On the national level, it is just happening. And it's funny because I was talking to our reporter in Florida and she was saying like she was saying it's crazy to hear national talk about the intersection with race and ethnicity, because she's like, in, in Florida, we always talk about white Hispanics. We always talk about like, the, you know, and I, I just think that like the way that that state has moved and the makeup of that state is so unique that like it both gives us a lot of lessons for what I think is coming to a lot of the identity questions, the rest of the country. But I also think it gives Democrats a lot of challenges to think about, like, how do we talk to these people? Because you can't talk over them. And I do think there is some risk of like talking over people that are not recognizing the, 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 their experiences and how they want to be talked to. Last question for you. When does Trump announce? Is he running? Every single sign says he's running. Um, but it's hard to say because he changes his mind every second. So like, you know, I was talking, I was walking in the news and I talked to our Trump reporters like the night when everything was you going. You guys have Trump reporters? Yeah, like Maggie Haberman, famously. <laughs> when I say like I talked to Maggie, this is me talking to Maggie Haberman. <laughs> I uh <laughs> I walked by the way, her. shout out Maggie Haberman. She owes me uh dinner because she thought New York was gonna be closer than it was. She said it was gonna be five points. I said it was gonna be more than five, and right now it's five point eight. So yeah, I was about to say it's like kind of five. <laughs> it's five point eight. Okay, that means I win. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait. I was like, I thought this was going to be a bet that she that she said Zelda was going to win. But I was like, oh, five points. That's not five points. Um, but I think like the for the, those people, I actually really like that. That reporting difficulty is so hard, and I also think that like it is clear that he is in crisis right now, as they reported, and like. He was expecting a wave that made it such that his nomination was just a coronation. And I think if it was 30 plus seats, Carrie Lake, Mehmet Oz, Herschel Walker in the Senate, there was nothing that Ron DeSantis or any other Republican could do. Like it would have been over. I think it is a full open season now. And that doesn't mean that he can't run and win, but that means that He's going to have to reprove himself as the Republican standard bearer. And I think he has to re-win over the people he considers his base. That's not a hard thing to do because they already liked you. But it is a thing he has to, I think, redo and reprove to himself as a winner. Um, so he that's going to be the challenge. He runs, he runs really good as an underdog, though. I ain't going to lie to that's you. That's what I'm saying. So that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's a, among a fractured Republican primary, a race to 25, 30%. Like, I wouldn't count. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I think it makes a lot of sense that he could come out of that. But all I'm saying is, like, he's not going to glide to it anymore. Yeah. Instead, Herndon, I love you, brother. You are one of the best reporters out there on the beat. Tell people about your podcast, how they can subscribe. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate your work. Um, I uh, Our show is called The Run-Up. We are um, have our last episode about this midterms next week. And then we're coming back with 12, 13 new episodes in uh, like March. 
And so it's really exciting. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. We are doing a lot of stuff about how we got here and kind of state of politics now. I'm really excited next year to dig into like how it's affecting people and get more like voices on the ground about like ways that the reasons why all this horse race stuff really matters. And so that's what I care about. And um, that's what I'm going to try to do. That's Dan Hernan with us on the Bakari Sellers podcast today as we kick off presidential election for 2024. <laughs> Thank yeah, you I'm so tired. much. I appreciate <laughs> it. Man. All right. Peace. Be easy. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.